Okay, so let's go ahead and get started. So um, today we're going to do a core curriculum. So we're fortunate to have Dr. Tisherman here today to give core curriculum. Um, most of you probably already know him, but just a little bit about him for those of you that are new. So Dr. Tisherman did his undergraduate degree at MIT in Boston. Um, he then went to medical school at the University of Pittsburgh, where he spent lots of his formative years. He did his general surgery residency and then a surgical critical care fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, after that, he joined the faculty at Pitt and remained there actually till 2014. During his stint at the University of Pittsburgh, he was actually elected to the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine Academy of Master Educators. So we're very fortunate to have him here now at the University of Maryland. He is serving as the role of professor of surgery. He's the director of our surgical intensive care unit and the director of the surgical intermediate care unit. And today he's going to talk to you guys about belly badness. All right. Well, thanks. Um, always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Um, well, a lot of you I haven't talked to you before, so <laughs> welcome. Um, uh, anyway, so we're going to talk about belly badness. And uh, just so, as a general outline, we'll talk about various catastrophes that can happen in the abdomen, some general evaluation uh, ideas, general management, and source control, which is a lot of the big issues here. So it's a little bit of a potpourri of cases to go through that I think illustrate a lot of the key problems we run into with abdominal badness. So general evaluation. And this is meant to be interactive. So when I ask a question, there should be some answers. Um, patient number one. So 67-year-old patient intubated in the ICU with pneumonia, multiple medical problems, coronary disease, CHF, AFib, diabetes, now has an increasing vasopressor requirement, not tolerating tube feeds. The belly is distended, seems to be diffusely tender, and the patient's febrile. What are your thoughts? What could be going on? Mesoteric ischemia, okay. What else? That was nice and loud and clear, got it. What else? Cholecystitis, yeah, good. What else? C. diff. Yeah, we see that every once in a while. Okay. Anything else? Pancreatitis, okay. Good. Just think of any organ in the belly and something bad could happen to it, right? So... Hopefully, at the end of this, you won't necessarily think of the belly as this weird black box where stuff happens or where surgeons do stuff, uh, and we'll make it a little more more clear. So we'll, we'll come back to this patient. So more typically, if you're evaluating somebody that's got belly pain, you can find out if they have some symptoms. You can talk to the patient. You can examine the patient. Uh, I love this this picture just because... All those stethoscopes on the abdomen are sort of totally silly. I mean, to me, what, <laughs> what? And, well, yeah, exactly. It's even, well, it's about as useful without it in your ears as it is with it in your ears, if you're listening to the belly. I mean, in my view as a general surgeon, listening to the abdomen is essentially useless unless you happen to hear like some advent, you know, some certain sounds of, of obstruction or something like that. So if you sit there listening to the belly for more than about five seconds, you're wasting more than five seconds of your life. And particularly, I love when it's like a nurse will say, oh, the patient has bowel sounds in all four quadrants. Great. That's, thank you for letting me know that. I was worried about that fourth quadrant. Um, anyway, so, but the physical exam is still really important, not necessarily listening to stuff, but just 
and most important to me as a, a former general surgeon um, or as a recovering surgeon um, is if you just tap on the patient, you tap on the bed, rock the pelvis, if that hurts, that's bad. If you start pushing and seeing if it's worse, you let go, all that kind of baloney, that, that's not terribly helpful. So if it, if it hurts when you're doing something that really shouldn't hurt, that's bad. But the problem here is that you can't really get a whole lot of exam on our patients. I mean, it's nice, yeah, if you could figure out, oh, it hurts more, right upper quadrant, left lower quadrant, whatever. And, you know, you can think about whatever is anatomically beneath your fingers when you're examining the patient. And, you know, th this is really historical for, for those of us older people in the room, perhaps. Zach, <laughs> Zachary Cope's uh, book on the early diagnosis of the acute atom, which goes through all the various types of bad things in the belly and the typical symptoms and signs and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's all well and good for the guy who comes in the ED or comes in your office with belly pain. But our patients look like this. And they're sedated. They've got lots of other stuff going on. So you're not going to get a whole lot of any symptoms out of them. And if you do get something on an exam, that usually means something really bad is happening. So that's why it's worth having this discussion. So let's say we've got this patient with some vague, diffuse belly pain and tenderness in the ICU. What kind of labs do you want? CBC? Lactate. Oh, geez. Okay, lactate. What else? Coax? <laughs> okay, I guess if you're anticipating that, sure. All right. Some enzymes. What was that? LLTs. Okay, good. So certainly at a minimum, generally you're going to get a CBC and dip. Check liver enzymes. Make Check pancreatic enzymes. Lactate. Just keep in mind with lactase because... You know, as general surgeons, we always get these phone calls from the Mickey. Oh, this patient's got a lactate of eight. You think he's got dead gut? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, just keep in mind, you get really high lactate sometimes just from bad sepsis, from any cause, not necessarily the abdomen. So it's not at all specific. But anyway, that's pretty reasonable. I mean, you may get some other stuff based on specific issues with that patient. All right, how about imaging? CT? Any other imaging? Plain films. Plain x-rays. All right. So plain films can be useful if you happen to see free air. Maybe extraluminal air fluid levels, but those are kind of hard to pick up. And, and the biggest problem is you can't, like, usually set people up. You can do methylatic cubes, whatever. So it's kind of hard. You get some sense of obstruction, larger or small bowel. I would say, for the most part, utility of plain films is just looking to see where tubes are. Um, but they can be helpful you know, if you happen to do an upright chest. What's wrong with that picture? All right, there's free air in the diagram. But you got to be in an upright position to get that x-ray. All right, here's an extra point question. What's the, what's Riggler's sign? Mm -hmm. See what on the other side? Well, I'll say more about what you see is air. Yeah. So if you're looking at any kind of imaging, you're looking for different densities between tissues, right? So typically, bowel itself is soft tissue, and typically you have soft tissue like stuff around the bowel, so you don't see that interface. You see the interface between the bowel and the air that's in it. If you see actually uh, 
air, or you see the bow wall, and you see both sides of the wall, which you can see in some of these uh, loops, that tells you there's air outside the wall, air inside the wall, ergo you have free air in the abdomen. So that film also shows free air. But for the most part, you're right, we're going to go for the CAT scan, and I keep this slide in here just because it brings out great memories of the Clinton healthcare plan. Anyway, um, so CT is probably the most useful single imaging test if you need to do some sort of radiologic imaging. Ultrasound uh, can be helpful, and actually if you go to other countries where you can't get a CT scan when you click your fingers, people do a lot more ultrasound looking for abscesses, looking for other pathology in the abdomen, so that's useful. It's very helpful for the right upper quadrant because you can see the biliary tree very well. Also helpful for the female pelvis. A lot of other stuff, maybe less so. MRCP can be helpful in certain circumstances. HIDA scans can be helpful. Rarely these days we do many contrast studies with flora, but that can help too. Just look for a leak or some other problem or obstruction. Um, but sometimes you don't need any of those things. The only imaging you need is bright lights and cold steel. So it's important to keep in mind sometimes patients don't need imaging, uh, so they, and they just need to go to the operating room, I mean, which always reminds me of uh, once or twice when my wife was an emergency physician and I would be on call for general surgery, and she would call me and say, will you come down here and examine this patient and take the patient for the appendectomy? Do I have to get the CAT scan that your resident wants me to get? And since I wanted to be able to go home at night and not sleep on the couch, I would say, yes, dear, I'll come down and take out the appendix. Uh, so some people just need to go to the operating room. All right, so the general evaluation can be complicated because our patients can't tell us much, can't get that good exam. We often rely on some imaging. We're just putting the whole picture together. So what about general management? Uh, so one of the first things, in addition to resuscitation, which I'll come back to a little bit later, is antibiotics for intra-abdominal stuff. So one thing to think about with intra-abdominal badness is the types of peritonitis. So if we talk about primary peritonitis, what does that mean to you? How about instead of primary, I said spontaneous. Still doesn't mean anything? Spontaneous bacterial peritonitis? So anybody that's got ascites can get peritonitis. That would be called primary peritonitis because nobody's done anything to the patient, right? So for that, gram-positive, simple, you know, it's usually simple bugs. So, all right, now that hopefully we got that point across, what would be secondary peritonitis? So it could be after an intervention. Trauma. Perf. So secondary to something. There's something that happened to the patient, like trauma or perforation or a surgeon, um, as opposed to just kind of happening out of the blue, like SPP. And there we're talking about gram negatives, and there's always a mix of bugs. So these things are important when you're thinking about what antibiotics you're going to use for the patient. All right. So I'll give you then tertiary, which is usually it's the person who's had secondary. Like somebody comes in, with perf diverticulitis, goes to the OR, gets a heartburn procedure, and now they're sick again a week later, and now they could be leaking from a staple line, they could have an abscess. The important thing is now your bugs are more resistant. 
Because, you know, if with all these cases, you're going to start some antibiotics without having any culture results. So if you're talking about somebody who's already been on some antibiotics for a while and had a procedure and now is sick again, think about, is it potentially fungal? Is it enterococcus now? Is there pseudomonas, resistant gram-negative? So those are important for your antibiotic considerations. Cultures, and yeah, kind of plus minus. Um, you know, in a situation that's pretty straightforward, they're not necessarily all that helpful even in the operating room. I and mean, culturing stool is usually not terribly helpful. Um, people do it. Uh, if it's a more complex situation, particularly like tertiary peritonitis, then you definitely want to get some cultures. You want to get blood cultures, but if you look at all kinds of patients who have sepsis and the potential for bacteremia, intra-abdominal sepsis is low on the list of causing bacteremia. So it's very uncommon that you actually have positive blood cultures. Uh, but the operative cultures, it's going to be a mix of stuff. It may or may not change your antibiotic coverage. So given that, we typically start with our antibiotic shotgun. And you know, based on the types of peritonitis I already talked about, you pick some appropriate antibiotics. And just thought I'd kind of run through what our UMMC stands for recommendations are for the antibiotics. So for SBP, the recommendation is ceftriaxone or Cipro. For secondary peritonitis, if somebody comes in with a perfect something, if they're not real sick, which may be patients that don't come to us or to any of you, um, ceftriaxone or flagyl, moxifloxacin alone, uh, if, if they have a penicillin allergy, relatively um, straightforward. You want to cover gram negatives, you want to cover the anaerobes. But if they're really sick, and that's where we're talking about the patients that are in the ICU with intra-abdominal sepsis, then you have to think more about zosin, septipine flagyl, ciproflagyl. So you want to get bigger coverage for your gram negatives, and you also want to cover anaerobes. So any questions so far? One thing that does come up as a, as a question is whether or not to treat for fungus. Uh, Canada treatment is kind of con somewhat controversial, I guess. Depends on the situation. So this, again, is coming from our own institutional recommendations that if you happen to culture something in the abdomen and you mainly grow Canada or some yeast without a bunch of other stuff, you should probably treat it. If it's actually in the blood, you should probably treat it. Upper GI tract perforation, a lot more Canada tends to be there, so there's some thought that maybe we should use it there, but that's not always uh, recommended. And certainly, if someone's really, really sick and not doing so well, it's not a bad idea to empirically uh, add it, because the issue is that the culture is going to grow much more slowly than the bug, the uh, bacteria are. And if you are going to do a fluconazole, it's a typical first line. So what is not recommended? Unison used to be pretty good for straightforward people coming in off the street with a perforation of something. Uh, and as TNM, but now there's more resistance of E. coli and other bugs. Cephatistan clindamycin also increasing resistance. Uh, and empiric aminoglycosides, generally not recommended. Uh, obviously more toxicity than the other antibiotics, and you've got other choices that don't require it. So unless you start growing something that's resistant and you really need that coverage, typically that's not recommended. Now, one of the next questions about antibiotics is how long to continue them. And I'm not going to throw a whole lot of data at you here just because there's 
not a ton out there. But uh, this one I threw out there just because it's got like the, the best title for a study. You know, if you're going to do any clinical research, you've got to have a good title for it. And titling a study on when to stop antibiotics, the Stop It trial, brilliant. So this is a study to optimize peritoneal infection therapy. Pretty decent number of patients, over 500. And it basically randomized them to what was sort of standard. That, you, know, you operate on the patient, they're looking better, the white counts come down, they're not, not febrile, things look pretty good. And they've done that for at least a day or two, stop the antibiotics. Or they have four days. That's it. Stop stuff. Move on. No surprise, at least to me anyway, um, no difference in outcomes of recurrent infections, surgical site infections, or death. So pretty much four days. And that's four days after source control, which is another question that kind of comes up, particularly in, the in our unit, the surgical ICU, with uh, the Emergency General Surgery Service, because they operate on somebody today, but they leave the belly open because they're not so sure about things. They take them back tomorrow, and they kind of wash out stuff, and they take them back again on Sunday, and then they close them. When do they actually have source control? You kind of got to discuss that with the surgical team. Now, here's the next thing. So antibiotics are one thing. Next part of this is how much pre-op prep in terms of resuscitation should the patient get before they go to the operating room. So we have some guidelines from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, and we have these bundles where within the first three hours you're supposed to check a lactate, get your culture sent, start broad-spectrum antibiotics, and give at least 30 mLs per kilo of fluid if they're hypothensive or of a high lactate. And then you kind of follow up and you do more and start pressing in the first six hours. Well, how does that play into patient needs to go to the OR because they've got a perf diverticulum? It's a great project for anybody who wants to take it on because there's like no good literature on this. Uh, you know, if you look at surviving sepsis, there's like a little paragraph buried under page 50 of uh, oh, if the patient needs source control, try to do that within 12 hours or something like that. It's like source control gets no respect. Um, the, the question, though, is this. And there was an interesting uh, sort of thought piece that was in the Journal of Trauma several years ago suggesting that intra-abdominal sepsis should be treated like trauma, like a patient with a ruptured spleen. So if you got a Perf diverticulum, you should be advantage like somebody with a ruptured spleen and get to the operating room as quickly as possible, which really makes no sense at all. I mean, I think in my career I've written like two letters to an editor. And so for this this paper, which I thought was crazy, I, I got Dr. Galvano and Dr. Anders to, to write this letter with me because the issue is if you take somebody, just comes into the ED, is real sick, and maybe hung a little bit of fluid, but now you're rushing to the operating room, What's going to happen when you give that patient general anesthetic? They're going to crash. But you also don't want to wait until, oh, yeah, let's schedule this for uh, tomorrow at noon, put it on for our third case. You don't want to do that either. So no, I don't, nobody knows really the answer here. seems to me, though, that some very quick focused resuscitation, get the fluids in, get on pressors, get some sort of reasonable stability, is really important before going to the operating room. But they need to get to the operating room. So any thoughts, questions about that? Anyone do a study? Uh, actually, the ACES team is starting to kind of look at some of their data on 
time to OR and what happened before they get to the OR. And I think there's some potential for trying, trying to maybe sort this out. Uh, but we certainly have never, nobody's ever controlled that in any way. <clears throat> okay. Source control. That's a key here. And this is an important point. Surgical infections are not medical infections. And what I mean by that is, you know, medical infection, if you've got pneumonia, you've got a urinary tract infection, you got to pick the right antibiotic and the patient should get better. A surgical infection is something where something's got to be done to get source control. You got to drain something, you got to cut something out, you got to do something. And that's important because that's got to play into your early management. All right, so back to our initial patient. Real sick, we heard mesenteric ischemia, cholestitis, C. diff, perforation, all those things. So ischemic bowel perf, hit on all those. Sometimes people will throw into that mix an abscess. And I just want to make the point of abscesses in the abdomen don't just happen out of the blue. Something had to happen to the abdomen. Either it was trauma, surgeon did a procedure, or something perforated. That's the only way you can get an abscess in your abdomen. So that should be, you got to think about why there's an abscess there, if, it, if there is one. Okay, so our workup. Uh, here's our labs. White count of 20,000, LLT to normal. Amylase 300, lipase 400, lactase 4. All right, now does that lean you toward one of the other things? Anybody thoughts of what the patient has or doesn't have? Okay, pancreatitis and somebody else staying up here. Okay. Could be. I usually shouldn't raise your light bay as much. Bed bowel. So the reason I put those numbers up here is these numbers, to me, as a surgeon, are much more worrisome than an amylase of 4,000 and a lipase of 10,000 or something like that. Because these elevations are what you see with ischemic gut. Because the, the gut starts falling apart, you leak into the, the venous system, and you'll, you'll get these mild elevations of amylase lipase. So you should not assume, just because those numbers are high, that it's coming from the pancreas per se. So what's wrong with this picture? Uh, let me just say, this is... Not lung windows, so that's lung. That's all lung. But so what? Portal venous air, and how do you portal venous air? Uh, Prokaryotic output. If you have caused some dead bowel or ischemic bowel, typically, um, like that. I mean, it's possible, I suppose, if you just have really poor perfusion of your liver, but then you get other stuff going on. So, ischemic bowel, what you see on CT is, you can see pneumatosis, you can see inflammation around the bowel, This and how you can tell pneumatosis from air inside the loop, bowel loop is that there's this thing called gravity, right? So, if you have air fluid level, like you see here or here, that's inside the lumen. Here, there's air that's below the fluid. That doesn't happen with gravity. So the air's got to be in something else. So the air's in the wall of the bowel. So this would be a somewhat typical, not that it's always a typical presentation of some of the ischemic bowel, 
with this mild elevation amylase lipase, high white count, diffuse belly pain, all that. Now, lots of causes of mesenteric ischemia, thromboembolism, um, most commonly, um, arterial thrombosis. Now, one thing, this is not necessarily an important, a key thing before the patient goes to an operating room, but if you have atherosclerotic disease, it tends to be very proximal. So that then totally includes you lose a whole lot of bowel. If you toss an embolus, it's going to typically lodge in the first, second, third branches down here, so you're not going to lose the proximal part of the jejunum or the duodenum. Uh, so from that standpoint, it's a little bit better, but it's still the same problem. If you've got bowel, it needs to be cut out. Venous thrombosis occasionally happens. Hypercoagulable states, poor light retention, uh, trauma. Most often, those patients don't require resection, although we just had a patient in the SICU a few weeks ago who lost a whole ton of bowel from venous thrombosis. Non-occlusive disease, you can occasionally see in the treatment there is more improving perfusion, not necessarily operating unless you have to. And the patients all have a whole bunch of comorbidities, so this is a very high uh, risk of mortality from ischemic bowel. And oftentimes, you know, you don't necessarily need, if you're thinking about it enough, the patient's really sick uh, in the ICU, the decision is usually you just got to go to the operating room and take a look. Um, you don't necessarily need the CT scan to decide if you're going to operate or not. Occasionally, people have done things like laparoscopy at the bedside or diagnostic perineal lavages for this, but, you know, really, if you're that worried about it, you should probably just go to the OR. But it gets complicated. The patient's up in the CSICU and is on VADs and all kinds of stuff keeping them alive. That gets really complicated. Obviously, a very high risk to do an operation, particularly if the operation turns out to not be very helpful. From the operative side, the surgeon's going to assess the vessels, resect any bowel is clearly dead, revascularize if possible, and then often take a second look. Questions? Okay, and again, as I said, we'll go through a potpourri here of cases. So we've got a 52-year-old woman and the neuro care unit, uh, large intracerebral hemorrhage. Yes, Dr. Her. How do you mean from the... So as as an intensivist waiting for the surgeon to make the right decision, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. I, mean, I think that's, well, I mean, certainly optimizing hemodynamics as best you can, doing the resuscitation so the patient's in as good a shape as they can be before they go to the OR, get the antibiotics on board. Right, that's why I think optimizing the hemodynamics, whether that's fluids, vasopressors, inotropes, whatever it takes for that particular patient, and you're right, it can be the heart. Even outside the CSICU, I mean, there, we, we, patients with fluid septic shock that have horrible cardiomyopathy, even early on. So yeah, 
I totally agree. And echo can be very helpful. Or the good old PA catheter, too. That would be another discussion. <laughs> we'll toss it in there. I mean, if you're waiting for, waiting long enough, for maximum fellow benefit anyway to put it in. Yes, sir. No, I mean, I think it's, it's like any other septic patient. I mean, the old days of norepinephrine being called leave them dead, lethal fed, you know, leave them fed always kills my patients. I've heard all those things. You, you need a perfusion pressure for necessary. Now, if the patient's really under fluid resuscitated and you put them on high dose pressures, that's not going to be good. But that's why I say if you think about optimizing everything, good volumes, resuscitation, phase pressure, norepinephrine's fine. Moving along. But, I mean, that's why I say you, you got to titrate it for that patient. And using using echo is probably the, the best thing to do to make sure you got the volume right, get the pressures right, get the inotropes right. Okay, so now we're talking about someone with a brain problem who's got a few abdominal pain, differential, who's hanging out in the RCU. Pathic ulcers, it could be. Could be any of the other things that do. I like this case only because I've got a great CAT scan. Um, cause this actually was the, the patient and the, the radiologist called me and said, can you come and look at this? I said, okay, this is the duodenum. That's the hole in the duodenum, the duodenal ulcer with the contrast leaking out around the liver. So, I mean, we, we don't see this at all as much as we used to back in the days before H2 blockers and PPI because we proflex everybody, but it can still happen. And, you know, and general surgeons do much less operating on the, the stomach and doing it for ulcer disease than they used to. When they do, it's a mess. Um, so it's just something we should keep in mind. It can still happen. Management is operate. Um, there are some suggestions for non-operative management and stable, non-peritonitic, non-septic patients, but those aren't the patients we're talking about that are in the ICU. So the patient has a perf of something, they usually need an operation. Okay, a 67-year-old female, left lower quadrant pain, get, but gets more diffuse, tenure on exam, without peritonitis now, nausea, uh, obstipation, white count 23,000. Thoughts? So this could be somebody that comes in the ED, not necessarily already in the ICU. I hear some, some divertic something. Okay. So possibly diverticulitis, not something usually that just occurs in somebody that's already in the hospital, but this is a case that I put on here for, uh, really for one real reason. So if it's mild diverticulitis, you just have some inflammation on the CAT scan and you treat with antibiotics. But if you have, and if you have diffuse peritonitis and the patient clearly is an operation, but if you have an abscess, that's actually an abscess, which you could probably just throw a dart at to drain. You should drain it. And one really useful principle is if the body has already walled off something, we should take advantage of that and try and drain it. Because if you just took this patient and operated on her and you get into all this pus, she's going to end up getting a colon resection and a colostomy. But on the other hand, you could just drain that and she'll get better. And, uh, you know, a great example is that a, a patient who happened to be the wife of one of our retired radiologists and they were in Eastern Europe, she got sick. He was sure she had diverticulitis. Gets her back here several days later, bunch of abscesses, bunch of drains, 
She got all better. Didn't need an operation. Okay, 70-year-old female, treated with, for pneumonia. Now she's got diffuse abdominal pain, fireball, white count 38,000. Do I hear? <laughs> Try not to go through the process. Of, I should like throw in a couple of the same ones again just to make sure you're not just using a process of elimination here. But, you know, that kind of leukocytosis or even higher, obviously C. diff. My previous institution had this automated system that if your patient got like a white count over, I don't know what the number was, 35 or 40,000, something like that, the attending would get a, an email alert. Your patient has a high white count. Have you thought about C. diff? And the best thing about that was they, they sort of um, indirectly came from the uh, CMO of the hospital. And if you actually replied to it, it would go to him and he would actually reply. And I actually got to reply to him one morning and said, thank you, Dr. Simmons. We took that colon out last night. So <laughs> Anyway, that's what it could look like on CT scan. And if you ever see it in the operating room, it's this big, boggy, thickened colon. It's pretty nasty. And if you ever scope it, which you rarely do anymore because you can get this you know, rapid test for C. diff, this is kind of what you see as pseudomembranes. But just so you know, pseudomembranes like this could be from mild ischemic colitis too. So management. Yeah, so if it's mild, again, these are the, the antibiotics recommended for UMC. Enteral vancomycin, if they can tolerate it, if they can't, you can use rectal vanco, IV flagell, fedoxamycin. If the patient is not doing well or really getting sick, definitely ought to get a surgical consultation early on. The standard surgical approach has been a subtotal colectomy. You leave the rectum because there aren't diverticuli in the rectum. Um, but there's also an approach that's uh, called loop ileostomy, this minimally invasive approach of just going to the OR laparoscopically, bringing up some some distal ileum, and then basically just washing out the colon um, and then washing vancomycin through the colon because it's really, it's a toxin problem, right? The colon itself is alive. It's not dead. So theoretically, this can work, and actually, you know, I know the ACEs occasionally will, will do this. The key thing, though, is don't wait till you clearly failed everything before you get surgeons involved. So I don't know if I've seen it. It has been done. I think I've seen it maybe once. The recommendation, at least the UNC recommendations, are basically if it's really failing therapy but not failing like in septic shock, it's it's one possibility. It's more used for recurrent disease, but it, it has been done here. And so also get GI involved here. All right, 55-year-old male admitted with a STEMI, cardiogenic shock, got PCI, balloon pump. Still on event, not tolerating tube feeds, fever, leukocytosis, some vague abdominal pain. Hey, calculus, close there. Very good. So, how are you going to make the diagnosis? Ultrasound. What about lab tests? Get some, right? <laughs> okay. What do you expect you're going to see? Okay, you're right, nothing. Um, so your labs, you're going to see a white count, but keep in mind, the only way you get elevated LLTs with gallbladder disease is if there's a stone that has now gone out of the gallbladder and is impacted in the common duct or at the distal cystic duct and um, 
and uh, cause obstruction of the common duct from that way. So unless you obstruct the common duct, your LTs are normal. You may get a little bit of transaminase elevation just from the inflammation, but LTs are not going to make the diagnosis for you, nor are they going to rule it out. So imaging, ultrasound is the main thing. You're looking for you know, the fluid around the gallbladder, some thickening of the wall. Maybe some, you may see some sludge. If you do a CAT scan, you can also see the same. This is really bad. I like the ooh. The ooh is good. The ooh is that this is emphysematous cholecystitis. That's bad. Uh, and you can see this on, on your ultrasound also. What if you do an ultrasound CT, you're not convinced? Other tests? So you do a HIDA. What would be a positive HIDA to tell you the patient has cholecystitis? Nothing, the gallbladder is not filled. So you see the contrast in the liver, you see it go through the biliary tree, it gets into the bowel, you never see the gallbladder. Just as a quick aside, because I have gotten this consult, if the patient has some liver disease, they never concentrate the stuff, the HIDA. If they don't concentrate it, you won't really see the liver, nor will you see the gallbladder, so it's useless. It is not a positive HIDA scan just because you don't see the gallbladder. You don't see anything. So you got to see this stuff to say it's positive. And it's also useful to give them a dose of narcotic, like morphine, to constrict the sphincter of OD, increase pressure in the biliary tree. You'll decrease your false positives. It's rare that you need to, to do that. So in terms of management, uh, certainly resuscitatum, cultures, and then operative risk. So we're talking about patients that are in the ICU. That's going to be the high risk. And so the typical management has been a cholecystostomy. I think sometimes we go get a little... Uh, ahead of ourselves with poking cholecystostomies in lots of patients, but it is useful. Uh, then you manage supportive care. Um, still, the best thing is to take out the gallbladder. So the patient's really not that sick. You know, they should just get the gallbladder taken out. And but this doesn't always work, particularly if you have that emphysematous gallbladder. I mean, that that's a wall of gallbladder that's dying. What what's the pathophysiology for this? It's poor blood flow to the gallbladder because of the patient's diabetic diabetes poor flow because of heart failure, you know, vascular disease, and a gallbladder sustained because they're not getting fed. So that's the pathophysiology. So that gallbladder could just fall apart, and then your, your drain's not going to do anything. So sometimes you've got to do something more than just put in a perk drain. Okay, uh, again, back to the neurointensive care unit. Patient with a severe stroke at the trach and peg and now is abdominal extension and septic. Where's the peg? Good question. Okay. So, um, well, here's the peg. Um, but unfortunately, here's the stomach. So, you know, somebody just did a procedure on a patient and they're not doing well. Think about the procedure and the potential complications of it. And the, all this fluid around here is, is some tube feeds and, and, and I don't try this experiment. Feeding the peritoneal cavity does not help in nutritional status. Okay. Don't do it. So we've got a problem here. The other thing is if it partially pulls out, this is the classic uh, buried bumper where it, it actually might be sort of working because it's still sort of a connection there, but it's basically in the abdominal wall. So the people who do PEGs should be taking good care of them, and, and nursing care is really important too. All right, 48-year-old male, diffuse abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, lipase of 10,000, anyway, 2,000. Sammy. <laughs> now, now let's go with pancreatitis. Okay, so and it, it's 
it's uncommon, very uncommon, I think, for patients that are already in the ICU for something else to get pancreatitis. But you can. It can happen. More often than not, they're coming in off the street, and they're, they have it because of gallstones or because of alcohol. So imaging, typically it's useful to do an ultrasound to really rule out gallstones. Uh, if there's a concern about a common duct stone, MRCP can be helpful. We often, they'll, they almost always get at least one, two, three, four, five, six, seven CT scans along the way. Uh, early on, it's helpful to rule out other diagnoses and look for complications like, like an abscess or a pseudocyst. We do feed them as soon as we can. Uh, there's no role for, uh, prophylactic antibiotics. Um, ERCP, really only if there's good evidence that there actually is a stone still in distal common duct. And then fluid collections, which invariably will occur with patients who have necrotizing pancreatitis, they will get drained, and now uh, the ACEs team is very aggressive about doing a step-up approach of putting bigger and bigger drains in, and maybe taking the OR and debriding what's what's going on there. Okay, 68-year-old male, diffuse abdominal pain, hypotension, pulsatile mass on exam. And this, this case actually is a guy who's driving across the state of Pennsylvania, he pulls his car over because he's got this diffuse pain, goes to this tiny little hospital in the middle of Pennsylvania in the middle of nowhere with all this. So what do you think? What's wrong with that or that picture? <clears throat> so these days, yeah, well, this isn't the same patient, but the patient I just mentioned did survive. But he yeah, had one more problem that I'll get to in a second. So, ruptured AAA, obviously another potential intra-abdominal catastrophe. These days, it's frequently managed endovascularly, but uh, sometimes they still have to do it open. So what are the potential complications of repairing this? Because this comes into what we need to look at in the ICU. Ischemic colitis, death. The largest blood vessel of your body just ruptured. There's a chance you're going to die, right? Paralysis. Renal failure. So basically, all of above. So the usual bleeding infection, vascular injury, you can have dyslocemia, you can toss off stuff from the uh, aorta, endo leaks. They're high risk of having cardiac events, respiratory failure, kidney failure, ischemic colitis, because you don't, in a ruptured situation particularly, you don't often uh, reattach or do anything to the inferior mesenteric artery, so there's a risk of, of uh, ischemic colitis. Spinal cord ischemia, very uncommon with the infrarenal, but as you get into the more thoracoabdominals, it's certainly a big problem. So we should not take it lightly. I mean, it's, it's you know, if you, over the course of my career, there are a few things that have really changed practice. Laparoscopy is one, and surgery anyway. Laparoscopy is one. Endovascular stuff is another one. If you think about somebody with a, a ruptured or even non-ruptured uh, aortic aneurysm, who gets a, an operation and goes home two days later, that's huge. But just keep in mind, it's still a big deal, and they're at high risk of lots of other stuff going on. So this guy, as I say, went to this little hospital in the middle of Pennsylvania. They actually repaired his aneurysm, and then he was hypotensive, and they thought he was having acute coronary syndrome. And he trans they transferred him to our hospital to the cardiologist because they thought he was having a STEMI. And, you know, if you have a hammer, all the rules. Yeah, so what do the cardiologists do? We can cath you, yes. Even at the quaternary care center, they cath him. His coronaries are clean. 
And then they looked under the sheets. His belly is huge, tight as a drum, and he's got abdominal compartment syndrome, and he's got dead colon. So look at the whole patient, no matter who you are accepting the patient. And we took out his colon. So just a couple quick seconds on abdominal compartment syndrome. Um, what boggles my mind, there's a lot of things that boggle my mind, but one being that there's actually like an international society about abdominal compartment syndromes. It doesn't seem like it's that complex a problem, but maybe I'm just being simple. Anyway, there's a grading system for intra-abdominal hypertension. Uh, you know, we typically measure the intra-abdominal pressure with a, a Foley. I'll just put like 50 cc of saline into the Foley and measure the pressure. And, you know, above 20 is kind of, kind of the abnormal. Above 25 is more typically very abnormal. But keep in mind, morbidly obese people run around with high pressures like that. And unless they have organ system dysfunction because of it, you don't really call it the abdominal compartment syndrome. It's just intra-abdominal hypertension. And then, you know, it's always a complex conversation with the surgical team as to when or if to take the patient back to the operating room. There are primary causes from intra-abdominal processes. There's secondary ones like it's been identified in patients with massive fluid resuscitation for burns. And then tertiary is kind of recurrent. And basically, it can affect every organ. Kidneys typically first, then the lungs, cardiac dysfunction, decreased uh, venous return, all that. And it's plankton blood flow, liver blood flow, and then even potentially the brain with patients have TBI. So it's an important problem. Not usually rocket science to figure it out. Risk factors, lots of fluid resuscitation, mass transfusions, hypothermia, metabolic acidosis, obesity. And oftentimes these days, particularly when we're talking about trauma surgeons as well as emergency general surgeons, they are way more apt to leave the belly open than to close it. So we see much, much less of this, particularly when those services are managed in the patient, than we used to. Because if you don't close the belly, it's very difficult to get the compartment syndrome. But what can we do for the patient? Let's say the patient is really tight and we're either waiting for an OR or we can't convince the surgeon to operate. So things that do kind of help, sedation, paralysis, NG drainage. If the patient does have some fluid collections that are drainable, drain them. De-resuscitation, that's becoming a, a hot topic in the ICU. You know, all of our patients that are septic or they go to the OR or, you know, whatever, end up very demodous and that's not good. So the sooner we can get that fluid off, whether it's by diuresing them, whether it's putting them on CRT, whatever it is, that can certainly help here. Uh, and we can try to optimize the abdominal perfusion pressure, but, you know, it's a little bit of a, a tough situation of is more pressure going to be good or bad. Uh, so, again, kind of optimizing the hemodynamics. Decompressive laparotomy does need to be done sometimes. Decrease intra-abdominal pressure, allow room for expansion. Uh, from the surgeon's standpoint, it's important to protect the viscera, uh, prevent excessive, uh, fat, you know, keep the fascia from separating so much you can't bring it back together, and you know, typically put some sort of uh, vacuum-assisted closure on top. Um, basically try and keep the innards inside. A couple quick comments on surgical drains. It is impossible to drain the entire abdomen. So if surgeons leave drains in the abdomen, they, are, they should be focused on something, whether it's lavaging the abdomen, whether it's a defined abscess, or like near the pancreas. So if the pancreas leaks, it's a controlled fistula. Because uh, drains are problems. They, if you leave them in for a while, they will erode into something, and you can have retrograde contamination through the drain. 
Drains don't drain. This is the general. This is not just in the abdomen. Like a chest tube that stops draining. Could be things are great. Or it could be that the patient is bleeding into the chest and now the chest tube's clotted. So just because the drain isn't draining, don't assume that's a good thing. And don't assume the drain is still in the same place that it was yesterday. So a good axiom is drains don't always drain what you think they're draining. As far as wound management, there's primary closure, close the fascia, close the skin. There's delayed primary closure, close the fascia, and close the skin later. Or secondary intention with fascia is closed, and then leave the skin open to, to heal up later on. A lot of vacs get used around here. They are very helpful, decreasing edema. Some, there's some improved blood flow to the abdominal wall, decreased inflammation, decreased bacteria. So you see them. This is a vac and just a like a soft tissue wound. Um, you'll hear the surgeon say there's a black sponge or a white sponge and green sponge and blue sponge, whatever, all kinds of different color sponges. The, and the 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 buzz, the, you know, the color isn't really important. The point is, some sponges are safe to put next to bowel. Some aren't. So some allow fluid to pass through easily. Some don't. So that's why they're different types of sponges. But that's more art than science. Um, but the key thing is, from a surgical perspective, is do something to protect the bowel and then allow drainage of whatever fluid's collecting in the abdomen. Just a second on direct peritoneal resuscitation, or DPR. This is something that our ACES team has been using a fair amount, um, where they'll put in a couple of drains and basically run peritoneal dialysate through them and then have it come out through the back or through other drains. Is it helpful? Maybe. So it's a hypertonic fluid. It's usually dialysate, at least what they use here. It does seem to lead to dilatation of arterioles. You get better blood flow to the abdominal wall and to the gut. Decreased organ edema, uh, improved blood flow, blood flow, decreased inflammatory cytokines. So you're kind of washing out evil humors. Outcomes may be higher rate and faster abdominal closure and decreased complications. I think one study I think would be cool to do would be if they've got this going, let the stuff dwell for a little while and then drain it out. And then basically you're doing peritoneal dialysis at the same time you're doing your DPR instead of hooking up to the CRT machine. I don't know. Could be interesting to try. Okay. Last point. Clinical failure. What if you're doing all this stuff that's not working? Patient has a fever, white count, ileus. So you want to rule out extra abdominal source, but what else do you want to think about? Should you change the antibiotics? So, who's this guy? You probably don't know who this guy is. His name is Willie Sutton, famous bank robber. When he was asked, why do you rob banks? That's for the money. So if, if something bad happened in somebody's belly and the surgeon's been there, now the patient's not doing well, that may be where the money is. So that should be a high up on your list of things to look for. So look for an undrained infection, CT scan, ultrasound, whatever you're going to do to drain it or re-explore the patient. So always think about, and this is not just true in the abdomen, the surgeon's been anywhere, even though they'll deny it. <laughs> if the patient's not doing well, it could be something related to the operation they did. It's all about source control, source control, source control, source control. Okay, so hopefully, giving you kind of an overview of the general evaluation of the belly in the ICU and general management, and a series of 
cases of various types of source control we need to deal with for belly badness in the ICU. Just some final comments. So the workup is complicated by critical illness. I mean, it's one thing if a patient comes into the ED and clearly just has purged something, goes to the OR. But the patient who gets sick in front of us, and they're in front of us for some other reason, it's way more complicated. But physical exam is still useful. Just don't listen with the telescope along. Um, labs can be helpful. Imaging can be helpful. But sometimes the patient just needs an operation. We talked about resuscitating the patient. That may be involved fluid, maybe inotropes, maybe vasopressors. But you want to optimize them before they go to the operating room. But don't waffle a long time. They need antibiotics. And I hadn't said this already. Source control, source control, source control. So think about specific entities. But there are times it doesn't, you don't need to know what's wrong. You just need to know the patient needs an operation. And then, so because of that, early surgical consultation is important. Don't wait till you tried all kinds of other stuff. Now the patient's dying in front of you to call for surgeon. Thanks a lot. Happy to answer any questions. Yes. Um, I don't know that I've seen that much of that. I mean, it's, it's a hypertonic solution, and maybe it's a matter of how well they, what drains they're using to drain it out, or whether they're just trying to let it drain out through the vac. Um, the theory behind it is you should have less edema and less fluid accumulation, but if you are accumulating, then, you, then it's probably worth uh, having them rethink where the drains are, uh, make sure you're using a hypertonic fluid if you're using perineal dialysate. Um, but that, that should really not necessarily be happening, but. Right, I mean, that, that's a great point. It's, it's not just the, the DPR, lots of other stuff going on. But typically, they're doing DPR after they've been, if they've got some initial resuscitation, been to the operating room, they may still be requiring fluid and, again, optimizing hemodynamics using ultrasound, using PA catheter or echo, whatever. Um, you should be doing that. But the DPR itself shouldn't necessarily be accumulating and causing trouble. Other questions? Yes. That's a very good question. It's not something I do, but um, uh, it can be done. I mean, intraoperatively by, yeah. Um, it, yeah, I'm sure that certainly the MIS team would do it. I think a lot of people on ACEs, and Bill, maybe you can correct me. People might do a colidoscopy or maybe just do a, just open up the common duct. Yeah, that's one of the things, that's why I say like, MIS would probably do it. 
Uh, aces might not. Um, but then uh, there, you've got a few choices there because another option is, is get the gallbladder out and then get GI to come to an ERCP. So it depends on your local expertise and as well as your own expertise. But the, the days of the open colonoscopies are kind of not totally gone because it still gets done, but that used to be an approach too. Other questions? Perfect. Great. Thanks, guys.